The following resource is from lmpc.org and we're delighted to provide it freely to all. If you feel led to give towards the ministry of Lookout Mountain Presbyterian Church, we welcome you to do so at lmpc.org give. Please stand for a reading from Deuteronomy chapter 9 verses 1 through 24. Hear, O Israel, you are to cross over the Jordan today to go in to dispossess nations greater and mightier than you, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of the Anakim whom you know, and of whom you have heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Know therefore today that he who goes over before you as a consuming fire is the Lord your God. He will destroy them and subdue them before you. So you shall drive them out and make them perish quickly, as the Lord has promised you. Do not say in your heart, after the Lord your God has thrust them out before you, it is because of my righteousness that the Lord has brought me in to possess this land, whereas it is because of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is driving them out before you. Not because of your righteousness or the uprightness of your heart are you going in to possess their land but because of the wickedness of these nations, the Lord your God is driving them out before you, and that he may confirm the word that the Lord swore to your fathers, to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. Know therefore that the Lord your God is not giving you this good land to possess because of, <coughs> of your righteousness, for you are a stubborn people. Remember and do not forget how you provoked the Lord your God to wrath in the wilderness. From the day you came out of the land of Egypt until you came to this place, you have been rebellious against the Lord. Even at Horeb, you provoked the Lord to wrath, and the Lord was so angry with you that he was ready to destroy you. When I went up the mountain to receive the tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant that the Lord made with you, I remained on the mountain forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water, and the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone written with the finger of God, and on them were all the words that the Lord had spoken with you on the mountain out of the midst of the fire on the day of the assembly. And at the end of forty days and forty nights, the Lord gave me the two tablets of stone, the tablets of the covenant. Then the Lord said to me, Arise, go down quickly from here, for your people whom you have brought from Egypt have acted corruptly. They have turned aside quickly out of the way that I commanded them. They have made themselves a metal image. Furthermore, the Lord said to me, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stubborn people. Let me alone that I may destroy them and blot, them, blot out their name from under heaven, and I will make of you a nation mightier and greater than they. So I turned and came down from the mountain, and the mountain was burning with fire, and the two tablets of the covenant were in my two hands. And I looked, and behold, you had sinned against the Lord your God. You had made yourselves a golden calf. You had turned aside quickly from the way that the Lord had commanded you. So I took hold of the two tablets and threw them out of my two hands and broke them before your eyes. Then I lay prostrate before the Lord as before, forty days and forty nights. I neither ate bread nor drank water because of all the sin that you had committed in doing what was evil in the sight of the Lord to provoke him to anger. For I was afraid of the anger and hot displeasure that the Lord bore against you, so that he was ready to destroy you. But the Lord listened to me that time also. And the Lord was so angry with Aaron that he was ready to destroy him. And I prayed for Aaron also at the same time. Then I took the sinful thing, the calf that you had made, and burned it with fire and crushed it, 
grinding it very small until it was as fine as dust. And I threw the dust of it into the brook that ran down from the mountain. At Taberah also, and at Massa, and at Kibroth Hatava, you provoked the Lord to wrath. And when the Lord sent you from Kadesh Barnea, saying, Go up and take possession of the land that I have given you, then you rebelled against the commandment of the Lord your God, and did not believe him or obey his voice. You have been rebellious against the Lord from the day that I knew you. This is the word of the Lord. Please be seated. Good morning. I add my welcome to Steve's. My name is Chad Middlebrooks. I'm one of the pastors here on staff, and it's great to be continuing in our study together in the book of Deuteronomy. And as we have noted in the book of Deuteronomy, Moses is giving three farewell sermons to this second generation who is on the cusp of entering to the promised land that God was giving them. And we're currently in the midst of the second sermon, which really makes up the bulk of the book of Deuteronomy. And in chapter 8, last week, Moses pointed the people back to remember God's past faithfulness to them in the wilderness so that they wouldn't forget as they came into the crossover, into the land of, of plentiful and bountiful blessings and a land flowing with milk and honey, that they would know where that came from. And so here in chapter 9, Moses points Israel forward in a sense as he stresses the importance of not only remembering who is fighting for them, but also why God is doing what he's doing as he ushers them into this glorious land. And so we will see this morning that God is faithful to keep his covenant promises, even despite his people's sin. And so with that as the backdrop, let's pray and then we will look at this text together. Father, we sang earlier that our sins are many, and Lord, they're far more than we could really understand and know and care to admit. Father, we thank you that your mercy is greater still. So as we come to your word this morning, we ask that you would open our eyes and our hearts and our minds to receive this glorious truth, or that we might lay down our pursuit of lesser things, and we might pursue you, the one who is the author and perfecter of our faith the one who is supreme and who is sufficient for everything we are called to walk through in this life. Lord, turn our gaze from our circumstances upon you this morning, we pray in Christ's name, amen. Tim Keller in his book, Generous Justice, offers the following definition as to what Jesus was meaning as he preached his Sermon on the Mount in the phrase that he talked about his kingdom disciples being poor in spirit. And this is what he says. It means seeing that you are deeply in debt before God, that you have no ability to even begin to redeem yourself. God's free generosity to you at infinite cost to him was the only thing that saved you. But many people today resist Jesus' teaching about our spiritual poverty. And Keller notes, on the contrary, you believe that God owes you some things. He ought to answer your prayers and to bless you for the many things that you've done. And even though the Bible doesn't use the term, by inference, we can say that you are middle class in spirit. You feel that you've earned a certain standing with God through your hard work. You also may believe that the success and the resources you have are primarily due to your own industry and your own energy. Now, as we begin this morning, I wonder if we are honest in our own hearts 
that we would say how true that might be for us, more than we care to admit. Moses has been incessant about the people of Israel practicing the discipline of remembrance. And over the last couple of weeks, we've been emphasizing the importance of sharing our stories with others around us so that others can know and hear of the good news and hear of the the gracefulness and the power of God at work in the gospel. So it reminds us, but at the same time, it also tells to others who have never tasted that God is good about his faithfulness to his people. And in our text this morning, we're going to learn more of what we need to hear about our story as God's beloved people. And you see there in your outline the two points we have this morning. First, in verses 1 through 6, we'll see God provide stunning deliverance that is not because of our righteousness. And then secondly, beginning in verse 7, going all the way through the end of our text this morning, we'll see that God provides merciful intercession that is because of our unrighteousness. So Moses here instructs the people of Israel to cross over the Jordan and to dispossess these nations. He says, they are greater and mightier than yourselves, cities great and fortified up to heaven, a people great and tall, the sons of Anakim, whom you know and have no, and whom of, you've known heard it said, who can stand before the sons of Anak? Now remember, just some decades earlier, the first generation sent spies into this land to see what it was like and who was living there. And if you remember, 10 of those spies came back with a report that said, we don't need to go over there. They're huge. They live in these fortified cities. They're far more powerful than we are. And we're like grasshoppers to them. And the cities and the people that produced so much fear in the first generation, they're still there. The situation did not look good. But in the face of this great foe, Moses here is trying to strengthen Israel's faith in God over these enemies that seemed so strong. Moses is telling the Israelites, look, you're about to cross over into a mission that you can't complete, but God is with you and he will give you the victory as you cross over. And the rest of this passage really is dealing with how Israel is to respond in the midst of their success as they go ever into this land flowing with milk and honey. Israel's miracle of victory would only be achieved as they recognize and acknowledge their own weakness and they acknowledge God's greatness as they depended fully upon him. And you see there in verse three, Moses actually reminds the people in case they'd forgotten about God's character, the one who's going before them. And he gives four descriptors of God's nature here in order to give them confidence as they cross over. First, Moses says, God goes before you. God is a guardian He's one who leads the way for his people. But not only that, he says he's a consuming fire. He's a warrior. He's a conqueror who fights on behalf of his beloved children. And then Moses says, you can depend upon God. He's trustworthy. He says, he will drive them out and make them perish quickly as the Lord has promised. And then finally, Moses describes God's character as a righteous judge. He says these wicked, he's going to produce them and make, take them out on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive them out before you. He's saying God's justice is going to be served and you can count on it. And so he's making abundantly clear that it's solely on the basis of God's character and who he is and the power of his intervention in Israel's lives that he's going to give them victory in this land. 
Victory is not going to come by the skill or by the ingenuity or by the wisdom of the people of Israel. But Moses imagines, based on his history with the people of Israel, how they will respond once they get into this land and they get this victory. And so he says and urges them strongly, don't think it's because of your righteousness as you get into the land that God is giving you this victory. What Israel would come to believe, though, is that while they knew that this conquest was not because of their own human strength, they thought that they were receiving this land because they were righteous and they deserved it. They would be unable to see that this land that was given to him was a gracious gift of nothing they earned or nothing they could do to secure it on their own. And Moses even goes so far as to give them the two reasons as to why God is doing what he's doing as he brings them into this land. Notice what he says there. Again, second time, it's not because of your righteousness, Israel, or your uprightness in your heart. It's because of the wickedness of the nations. And I'm gonna keep my promise that I made to your forefathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That's why I'm doing what I'm doing. So Israel could take credit for nothing. They couldn't take credit for the promise that was given to them, nor could they take credit for the fulfillment of this promise. And just because God used Israel as his agents to bring his just judgment upon the nations, it did not mean that Israel themselves were good or righteous. Just in case Moses wasn't clear enough, verse 6, I think he knew how stubborn they were. God is not giving you this good land to possess because of your righteousness. You think he was experienced with their stubbornness? Israel's future occupancy of this land was a token of God's merciful generosity to them. It was also an expression of his judgment upon these nations and furthermore, fulfilling his good promise to their forefathers. But Israel believed they had something to do with it. And so they took on this posture of self-righteousness, of pride. Now, if we're honest this morning in our own hearts, We will admit this posture of self-righteousness can easily creep into our lives and manifest itself in various forms. Take, for example, how easy it is to observe others in a different culture and see the way that they do things and how they approach different things, their traditions, and think, well, ours is just better. It's not that theirs is different, it's just ours is better. Years ago, Jessica and I were at a conference at our mid-year when we were serving overseas, and it was a conference of about 2,000 people from all around the world And we started praying Korean style. If you don't know what that is, you start praying out loud all together at the same time. And you can imagine for us as Americans, that seemed a little uncomfortable. We weren't used to that. We were used to our little popcorn prayers that we pray individually. But that didn't mean that their way was wrong and our way was right. What about when it comes to salvation? Most of us will acknowledge and will admit this morning, yes, there's nothing I bring that makes me worthy before God to receive his love and acceptance. But if we really peel back the layers of our heart and we evaluate the way that we make decisions and our motives, they are full of ways that we think we are deserving in some way, shape, or form of God's love and of his acceptance. See, our sinful hearts naturally default to self-righteousness, when we experience success. And there's usually this kind of predictable pattern that it happens and how it flows and grows in us more and more. We put forth our own energy and our own effort and we have some success. And people start complimenting us for that success. And we think, man, this feels pretty good. Yeah, I did have something to do with that. 
And then we look at others and go, well, they haven't had the success that I've had. So I've got to be a little better than they are. And then we look at their lives and we see the sins that they struggle with and the failures that they have. And we say, well, I don't struggle with that. So I've got to be a little more righteous than they are. And this cycle just continues to perpetuate and go on and on until we are blinded by our own arrogance and our own pride. And when a self-righteous mindset is applied to salvation, it often leads us, even if it's just subconsciously, to think as a believer we look to other non-believers and think there is some redeeming quality in me that God saw, that I caught his eye, that they don't have. Or that we, innate have some, we possess some good works that we've put forth, that God has seen, and so he's rewarding us for those good things. But in our hearts, when we hold this to be true somehow, what it does is it signifies a lack of self-awareness of what is really true in our hearts. Because the only way that you can think that you have what it takes to please God and become righteous is if you lower God's standard to a place you think is attainable or you just gloss over all kinds of sin in your heart. And so this should lead, as Moses is urging Israel, it should lead us to ask in our own hearts, what are ways that I'm assuming a posture of self-righteousness that I may not even know because after all, as one author notes, self-righteousness wears many disguises. And we usually see it very easily in the lives of others, but we struggle to see it in our own. And this is partly because we often veil our self-righteousness behind words of gratitude when someone compliments us as if though we are being humble, but really we are wanting, we're glad people noticed and we're just underlying those words of gratitude and thinking that we're saying we're doing it for the glory of God but what's underneath that is really just self-justification, self-righteousness. We can also cloak our self-righteousness behind religious behaviors, thinking that not only do I pray, but man, you ought to hear me pray. I got some pretty good prayers. And that makes me worthy of God's blessing. But how often do our prayers resemble more than a, like a grocery list? of desires that we want met and we think we've earned and we're deserving of. Or we can think that because we are living better and more righteously, at least on the surface, than others, that that makes us more worthy. But regardless of how we disguise our self-righteousness, in the end, it all has the stench of pride. And unfortunately, we're not asking the Spirit to surface this in our hearts we're often the last ones to smell it on us. There's a story told of a grandfather who was visiting his grandchildren and he fell asleep on the couch one afternoon and the grandkids came in and saw him asleep and they thought, we're gonna have a little fun with granddad. So they go to the refrigerator and get some really smelly, pungent Limburger cheese and they smear it on his mustache. So granddad wakes up and he, man, it stinks in here. So he gets up and goes into the kitchen and he says, gosh, it stinks in here too. He tells the kids, he says, I'm going to go out to the outside to get some fresh air. And he goes out and he goes, this whole world stinks. That's what the self-righteous person is like. We can easily spot it in other people, their shortcomings, their sin, their unrighteousness. And yet we often overlook that we are the one that often has the smell of stench on us. What Moses is telling Israel and what he's telling us this morning is that God has delivered us from our enemies the world, the flesh, and the devil, but not because of anything in us, 
We didn't deserve any of it. The only contribution that we make to our salvation is the sin that made it necessary. Why does God love us? Because he chooses to love us. Why does he bless us? Because he's a covenant-keeping God. Next, we see that God provides merciful intercession that is because of our unrighteousness. Now, if you remember back in chapter 6, the Shema, as it's called, where Moses says, Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, soul, and might. And that phrase is repeated here at the beginning of chapter 9, Hear, O Israel. And Moses is revealing that it is impossible to carry out a love of God without seeing how sinful and unworthy we are before a holy God. We have to see the depth of our sin because our genuine love of God is a response to the Spirit opening our eyes, opening our hearts to see our sin that we humble ourselves before this God who has given his Son so that we might be redeemed and rescued. Israel is blessed because the Lord is merciful to sinners. And we see this familiar call of Moses yet again. Remember. Israel, remember. But this time, notice how, what he calls them to remember. He says, remember how sinful you are. And so from verse 7 to the end of this text, Moses is giving instances of reminding them of how persistent they were in their unrighteousness before God. And he begins broadly and then he funnels down to more specific examples of their gross sin before their God that they've claimed faith in. Now, have you ever wondered how God would describe you, describe your motives, your actions, in and of yourself, apart from the righteousness of his son that is given by faith? How do you think he would describe you? Well, wonder no more. Because God, through Moses, describes what he thinks about Israel here. Listen to the descriptors that he gives. And all these are in this text. He says, you're arrogant, stubborn, rebellious, provocative, corrupt, idolatrous, sinful, evil, unbelieving, and disobedient. Other than that, you're pretty good. And it's not like Israel had a few minor hiccups in their relationship of an otherwise healthy one with God. No, from the beginning, arrogant defiance has marked their journey over these last decades. And in verse 8, Moses then recounts Israel's rebellion in the wilderness with the incident of the golden calf, which most of us remember. Moses goes up the mountain to receive the law as God has cut this covenant with his people. But God is angry and his anger is kindled because they're down the mountain fashioning a golden calf. And you love how God tells Moses, hey, you better go down to your people whom you brought out of Egypt. He doesn't even claim them. So they've just made this covenant and he's declared his love for them, given them the law and said, this is how you're called to live. This is how life works best. And Moses' brother Aaron is down there leading a charge on how they can build a golden calf and worship it because Moses has taken too long to get back. The sin was heinous offensive to God so he wanted to disown them he wanted to destroy them and start all over again with Moses Moses for a split second probably thought that's not a bad idea but Moses comes down the mountain with the stone tablets throws them on the ground and they break symbolizing 
Brothers and sisters, this is what you've done with the covenant that God made with you. You've broken it by your rebellion. Disregard for who God is. And in a continued effort to get his people to remember, he goes on and gives four other specific instances of gross sin in the life of Israel. First, at Taborah, which that name alone means burning. If you remember the incident where God brings fire down on the camp of Israel, because they're upset because they don't have meat like they did back in Egypt to eat. And then at Massa, they complain because they don't have water to drink and they're grumbling against Moses and they wanna put Moses to death thinking, you brought us out here to die, we'd rather be back in Egypt. And then at Kibroth Hataeva, Israel complained there because there wasn't enough variety on the menu. They were tired of eating manna. And at this point, Moses himself wanted to die because of all the complaining. And then Kadesh Barnea, the first generation, they're on the cusp of entering into this land. But rebellion and disobedience and unbelief is what marked them. And God said, no, you're not making entrance into this land because you don't trust me. You don't believe my promises and my power and presence with you. Israel must see and be reminded that they are deserving of God's just punishment of themselves because their sin is just as evil as the nations who are being destroyed. Especially as they enter into this land of abundance, they have to be reminded that they are not worthy of what they're about to enjoy and receive. It's a gift from a loving God. Brothers and sisters, we're not any different than Israel. There's not a day that goes by in and of ourselves that we don't act out in rebellion yet again, stirring God's anger towards us. That's what we deserve. Because it's easy for us to relegate our sin problem to those big outward sins that we acknowledge that we have. While at the same time overlooking or minimizing a whole host of other sins. Even accepting some of those sins. And when we do this, it's natural for us to think that we're better than we are. It's natural for us to look down upon others and think that we are more deserving of God's love. The problem is this isn't the full picture of what our hearts are really like. Because every day you and I have numerous thoughts in our head that are sinful, that we just gloss right over. And thanks be to God that you don't know all the thoughts that I have in my head. And likewise with you. And our speech is filled with things that are profane, that are crude, that's gossip, it's slander towards others around us. And many of our actions are filled with wickedness as they relate to how we use our time and our money, our energy, our bodies, our relationships. Imagine if every one of our sins were put on these screens for everyone to see. Every one of us would have the same response. We'd be in the fetal position sucking our thumb out of embarrassment and shame. Well, our sins may not be put on these screens, but it doesn't make them any less real or any less heinous before a holy God. John Newton said this, he says, we don't learn of the depth of the corruption of our nature simply by being told it. We learn it through bitter experience as we struggle with sins that that seem as natural as breathing and as hard to give up. Brothers and sisters, may we plead with the Holy Spirit to reveal the depth of our sin in a way like we've never seen it before so that we might repent of specific sins specifically. We might taste and receive the forgiving grace of the gospel in a way that leads us to freedom like we've never known. We have to first acknowledge it because a shallow view of sin 
will inevitably result in a shallow view of the work of Christ on the cross. As one author notes, he says, repentance points us to our deepest problem, sin. And it points us to our response to that, humility. And then it points us to the only one who can fix that problem, Christ. Without seeing our sin and repenting of it, what happens is we are prone to view both the seriousness and the severity of our sin, as well as not seeing the holiness and the majesty of God. Think about a person who struggles with alcohol addiction and they go to Alcoholics Anonymous and then that person makes it through the treatment process and they come out on the other side and they call themselves a recovering alcoholic. That person will typically say, you know, I've been sober for 20 years now. And we may think, well, gosh, if you've been sober for 20 years, you're not recovering. Sounds like you've kicked this thing. But they'll be quick to say, no, 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 no. I may not have had a sip for 20 years, but I'm still recovering. And most of the time they say this out of humility because they know that even though they've been sober for 20 years, they're one sip away from going back to that lifestyle that they've left behind. In a similar way, we must too remember our sinfulness and humble ourselves daily before the Lord, pleading before God that he keeps us from falling off the wagon, falling back into those sins and the love of the flesh that we've had in our past that God has redeemed and delivered us from. And when we do sin and we do fail and go back into those patterns, that we repent and receive the grace that is given to us through the work of his son, Jesus. Because even though Israel was God's chosen people, he didn't and he couldn't gloss over their sin. Because sin is never free. It always comes with a price tag. See, their election was an example of his grace to undeserving people. It wasn't a reward for good works that they had done. And then notice this. In the midst of God's anger towards his people, look in verse 18. We see a merciful intercessor, a mediator. Verse 18, we read that Moses, he lays prostrate, pleading before God for the people of Israel. He goes back up 40 days, 40 nights, again, fasting on behalf of Israel's rebellion. Moses isn't glossing over their sin. He's acknowledging they are wicked, they are sinful, but he's pleading God's mercy on the character of God and his compassion towards his people. And the fact that he made a promise to their forefathers and he must keep it. In a couple of weeks, we're gonna investigate a little more thoroughly this idea of a mediator, but you see how helpless Israel and you and I are before a holy God because of our sin. Only through the interceding work of a savior can we be redeemed and have all of our sin cleansed because of the work of Jesus. We have a better intercessor than Moses. The Lord Jesus Christ who stands between us and God's righteous judgment of us. He pleads mercy before the Father on our behalf. And I love how Titus 3 describes our situation. It says, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. But... But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us. Why? How? 
not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy, by the washing of regeneration and renewal of the Holy Spirit. All of our messiness, all of our sin serves to emphasize the immensity of God's mercy towards undeserving sinners like us. God blesses us in Christ in spite of our messiness. The gospel is good news for bad people from a good God. The gospel cuts right to our hearts of our tendency to think and trust in our own righteousness, to think we're superior, we're better than others around us, more worthy of God looking upon us. Because as Apostle Paul tells us in 1 Corinthians 4, what do you have that you didn't receive? And if you received it, why do you boast as if you didn't receive it? It's all generously gifted to us at the cost of the Son, given through the love of the Father to undeserving sinners. And so every day we must live our lives knowing that my hope is built on nothing less than Jesus' blood and his righteousness, as the hymn says. As we remember our unrighteousness and we remember the righteousness of Christ that is given to us, we will then be empowered to live more joy-filled, fruitful, and meaningful lives in the way that he's called and designed it to. So as we live our lives, may we take heart and this glorious truth that we are more sinful than we can ever believe, but we are far more loved than we could ever dare dream. Let's pray. Oh, great God, we ask that you would humble us, that you allow us to see more of our sin so that it might magnify and highlight the beauty and the work of the cross. Father, forgive us when we look upon ourselves more highly than we ought, when we compare notes with one another and thinking that we actually have something to offer, that we've contributed something to you looking upon us, drawing us to yourself and blessing us. Father, thank you that you're patient with us. Lord, may we be reminded daily of your steadfast and abiding love towards us. Bring conviction, Holy Spirit, where we need to confess sin that we've not repented of. Small and big ways, would you walk with us, Holy Spirit, and would you point these things out so that we might confess to the God who forgives and we might enjoy greater freedom than we've ever known. Father, do this for our good, we pray in Christ's name. Amen.